Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Catherine Musumici about her new book, Lethal Tides, Mary Sears and the Marine Scientists Who Helped Win World War II. Dr. Musumici is a graduate of the University of Texas Schools of Medicine and Law. As a pediatric surgeon for over 20 years, she has cared for thousands of critically ill and injured children from newborns to teenagers at major medical schools and hospitals across the country. She is an award-winning author, and this is her third book. Catherine, welcome to That Said. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here today. So this book of yours, Lethal Tides, Mary Sears and the Marine Scientists Who Helped Win World War II, was a terrific read. I loved this book. And before we dive into it, I'd like you to first tell us something about yourself and then how did you decide to write this book? Well, Michael, as you know, I am a second career author. My first career was uh, practicing medicine. And um, my first two books have to do more with the history of medicine. My second book was a history of injury care in the United States. And if you think about it, the history of injury care follows the history of wars in this country. So I started with the Civil War and I worked my way through. And in the process of researching and writing about wars, I decided I wanted to write a book about World War II. I wanted to find a story about World War II and write that. And this book just evolved or how did you come to this particular aspect of World War II, given your medical background? And you also are a lawyer, correct? Yes, that is true. I did serve a brief stint in the uh, legal profession. And I always tell people nothing makes you appreciate the practice of medicine like the practice of law. Uh But anyway, I was looking around for someone to write about in World War II, particularly a woman. And I had actually checked a book out of the library thinking I might write about uh, someone who was a mathematician in World War II. But there was a chapter on Mary Sears. And when I read that, I was just blown away not only by um, her accomplishments during the war, but how it tied into the coming of age of oceanography and how we were learning to fight in the ocean, the amphibious campaign. And I just thought it would be amazing to write a book that uh, intertwined those three threads. And I, I pretty much decided, you know, I'm going to look into this a little more. And then Veterans Day 2017, I went home to Southeast Texas to see my dad. And he was 90. He was 90 at that time. He had been a 17-year-old sailor in World War II in the Pacific campaign. And I said, Dad, let's take your oral history of the war because he had never spoken about the war. And when we started talking, I found out that he had been at all these major amphibious assaults that he had never mentioned. He had been at Palau. He had been at uh, Lingayen Gulf. He had been in Okinawa. And he had been uh, at the occupation of Japan. So just finding that out on the heels of learning about Mary Sears, I just thought, oh, I've got to write it now because this, in a way, is my father's story. Yeah, so it's sort of a family memoir in a very small sense. Exactly. I mean, I felt my father died before the book was finished, but, uh, you know, I felt like he was with me every step of the way. It was just great. It's great. So who is Mary Sears? Tell us about her family and her early years in Wayland, Mass. Uh, Mary Sears is is a woman who grew up in uh, Wayland, Massachusetts, which is about 10 or 15 miles uh, west of Boston. And she was born into a family of privilege, and she, by all rights, should have become a debutante. In fact, she was never given a middle name. Her name was Mary Sears because the expectation was when she married, her name would be Mary Sears and then whatever her married name was. That's how that was done in her family. So she was on the path to become a debutante, and unfortunately, tragedy struck at age six, her mother died unexpectedly of polio. 
leaving behind Mary and her two younger siblings. And at that time, her father, who was a textile merchant in Boston, he was overcome by grief and he left the country to travel in Europe, perhaps to do some business. But, you know, all we know is that he left for some period of time, ranging from months to perhaps years, leaving Mary in the care of a patchwork of relatives and friends and this sort of thing. So at an early age, Mary Sears uh, developed these qualities of independence and responsibility. And she always said in her uh, oral histories later that she helped take care of her younger siblings while her father was, was gone. Now, fortunately for Mary, another twist of fate, when her father returned, he actually married a woman who was a teacher at the Windsor School in Boston. And the Windsor School is this amazing place. It was founded by Mary Pickard Windsor, who believed in uh, not just educating women, but preparing them to live independent lives and go to college. And so her father, Edmund Sears, married Sophie Bennett, who was an instructor at the Windsor School. And Mary then was enrolled in the Windsor School in the fifth grade through the 12th grade. And this sort of changed her whole trajectory because no longer was Mary being prepared to marry off, but she was being prepared to go to college. And um, another twist of fate, when she got ready to pick her courses at Radcliffe, her uh, stepmother said, don't just take what women normally take. Mary was was planning to become a Greek scholar. And she said, don't just take you know, the classics, take take a science course, take something new, something different. And so Mary uh, just happened to enroll in a science course at Radcliffe. And you can see when you look at her transcript, the first semester is all these classics and one zoology course. And then the next semester, everything's like 18 hours of zoology. <laughs> and from, the, from that point on, she was hooked and she was good at it. And it just so happened that where she was studying in the uh, Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard, the women were only allowed to use the top floor of the library. They didn't have free access to the library as the male students did. And because she was up there uh, studying specimens, uh, she happened to make the acquaintance of Henry Bryant Bigelow, who was the foremost marine biologist of our time. And he offered Mary a job as his research assistant, and that set her on the path to become a marine biologist. So let's just define terms for a minute. You use in the book marine biologist, oceanographer. What is the study that she undertook? What does the discipline entail? Well, at that time, there were no oceanography majors. So people who were going to go into uh, marine science generally got a degree in zoology. And that's what Mary did. Undergraduate, master's, and doctorate are all in zoology. Um, The field of oceanography itself at that time was divided roughly into marine biology and physical oceanography, which was more the study of waves and tides and physical phenomena. Mm -hmm of the ocean. So Mary, by virtue of becoming a zoologist concentrating in uh, marine organisms, was occupying a segment of what would become the field of oceanography. And the specimen that she specialized in, plankton? She specialized in plankton, which are organisms of varying size. And basically, plankton are defined by these organisms that just kind of drift throughout the ocean. They are not self-propelled. And they are usually on the lower rung of the food chain in the ocean. And that is what Henry Bryant Bigelow studied, and that is what Mary Sears studied. Sounds like my career, in a way. Just floating across the ether on the lower end of things. So she's there studying as a research assistant to Bigelow, and an opportunity arises where she can go to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts. Is that right? Is that what the next step for her is? That's exactly right. Once she started working with Bigelow, he would decamp to the uh, marine biology facility there, the marine biologic lab in the summer 
and he would take Mary with him. And she was able to take courses at the Marine Biologic Lab and also just continue to keep helping him study his organisms. And at that time, Bigelow had been asked uh, to produce a grant, a study, if you will, to describe the need for another marine biology, a full-range oceanographic institution on the East Coast. So he was writing this grant at that time, and all these visiting dignitaries would come through his office or his lab, and Mary was meeting all these people in oceanography from around the world that were visiting him and discussing the need for this institution. And the institution was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, and that's how Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution came to be founded in the year 1930. And almost forever after that, Mary Sears was part of that institution. When she joins, is she one off? Are there other women there, or is she alone? She is almost exclusively the only woman. There are other women coming and going for brief periods of time, as near as I can tell. But I believe Mary is the sole fixture throughout most of the time. So now I would guess that to be a marine biologist or oceanographer studying plankton, you've got to go collect plankton in order to study them. And I know that from the book that Woods Hole had the only state-of-the-art vessel, the Atlantis. So I assume that Mary would go out on the Atlantis and collect her plankton. Am I wrong or right? And you would be incorrect because at that time in our history, women were not allowed to go out on oceanographic expeditions. And that seems kind of, it seems kind of cruel in a way that a woman is allowed to enter the field of oceanography, but isn't allowed to participate fully in the field. And and especially this very important aspect of going out and collecting your own specimens, because it's not just a matter of dragging things up from the ocean. When you're in the midst of collecting, you need to make various observations about the status of the water, the weather, what are the clouds doing, you know, what are the groupings of the animals, all of this sort of thing that she was not getting the opportunity uh, to do. So initially she was studying Bigelow's organisms, and then uh, later she had to rely on her colleagues to bring back the organisms for her. But that was subpar because, according to Mary, they wouldn't be labeled correctly. They might not be preserved properly. It was an exercise and frustration for her to have to deal with these specimens secondhand. Why was it that, what's the history? Why wouldn't they allow her on the Atlantis? Well, the superstition against, it wasn't just the Atlantis. This was pretty much across the board in our country. There was only one oceanography program I'm aware of that allowed women on board ships at that time, and that was the University of Washington. But there were superstitions dating back to the time of Odysseus that women were unlucky on board ship. And the thinking was that they would incite an angry sea or just cause some kind of misfortune, like an attack or whatever. But they were not allowed on board expeditions, which is kind of ironic given the fact that women figurines were frequently carved into the bow of the ship. So um, it was uh, very much a a strange, restrictive practice that held back women in oceanography in this country, not necessarily in other countries. What's interesting that you point out in the building of the Atlantis, they never even built separate quarters or bathrooms for women. There was not even a contemplation at the time of the building of the vessel that a woman would ever step foot on it. Well, that's exactly right. And uh, Bigelow had every opportunity since he was the founder of the institution and uh, contracted for the Atlantis to be built. He certainly could have included small supper quarters or small bathroom facility, uh, but that was not done. And that was just another kind of ironic sort of aspect that he definitely mentored Mary Sears and relied on her. And uh, she, you know, in a way was his heir apparent when it came to the study of marine biology. But 
uh, he would not give way on that policy to allow women on board the ship. So there she is, reviewing specimen that other men were collecting for her and, and not very well. And obviously her frustration is growing and an opportunity presents itself uh, to go to Peru. So tell us about that trip to study plankton and guano birds. In right. Peru. Well, so what was happening in Peru in uh, the mid to, to late 1930s is that uh, they had a very robust at one time guano bird population and they were very dependent on the guano birds because their number one economic crop was guano, which was considered the finest fertilizer in the world. There was no better fertilizer. And there were just millions of these guano birds around. And then in about 1939, the population started to wane. So they initially sent for an ornithologist, William Vogt from the United States, went over to study exactly what was going on with these birds. And he quickly figured out that the birds were starving, that something was going on with their marine food source. And he looked around and, you know, found out that Mary Sears was a prominent uh, planktonologist and started corresponding with her about what could be done. And then he just decided, well, you need to come over here as quickly as possible and help us figure this out. So Mary Sears did not hesitate, uh, even though we were on the verge of war, you know, Europe was already erupting in war at that time, but she took what would be considered uh, a very dangerous voyage down to Peru uh, so that she could, for the first time, get on one of these uh, expeditions because she was going to have to go out on this fishing trawler. And this fishing trawler, the conditions were extremely primitive, especially for a woman in that day and age. There were no uh, real separate quarters for women. She had to crawl over her, you know, crewmates, all male crewmates who did not speak English. She had to use a pail on board the ship. Uh, she had all her meals with the men in, in you know, sort of dirty plate and uh, just what we, you know, a typical fishing boat. But she thrived in that atmosphere. And I had the opportunity to review her logbook from uh, that expedition. And you can see just the joy that she experienced every day, the observation she wrote about seeing the birds and, and uh, other marine life that she would observe. And one of the funniest things she wrote on top of one page, she wrote, unfortunately, the only alcohol here is for preservation of the specimens. That kind of cracked me up. Uh, but yeah, she did really well there and, and was thriving. And did they figure out what the cause of the <laughs> food chain problem was for the guanos? You know, I think they had a pretty good idea that the the problem was the guano birds were eating the anchovies and what the anchovies ate was plankton and the plankton supply had dwindled uh, more or less I think as a result of what we would call today an El Nino phenomenon the warming of the waters they didn't get that all nailed down before Mary had to go back to the United States but that is where she was on this very day, December 7th, 1941, when uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor took place. And this is a day that we remember, uh, an event that we remember today, December 7th, that we just happened to be having this chat on this day. And Mary did not find out about the attack on Pearl Harbor for a couple of days because she was at sea. And when she did find out, she had a decision to make about whether she was going to continue to you know, pursue her mission, even though it was even more dangerous now that the United States was in, involved in the war. But she decided she needed to stay and finish that uh, work. So she did finish it, and she went back to Woods Hole in March of 1942, where she found that the Oceanographic Institution had been completely transformed by naval research. Everything was naval research. When she walked into the labs, it was a whole different vibe. It was bustling. And she had to get involved with a naval research project. And that was under the new directorship of Columbus O'Donnell Islin. Yes. And that's correct. And so she gets back. And I, I assume 
that the war begins to create opportunities for marine biologists, especially when we start thinking that we're going to be fighting in the Pacific. Well, you know, you're exactly right, Michael. Uh, The attack on Pearl Harbor thrust the United States into their first two-ocean war. We had already been helping to protect merchant convoys in the Atlantic Ocean. But with the attack on Pearl Harbor in the Pacific, uh, we were suddenly thrust into also fighting in the Pacific, which is a 640 million square mile ocean, the vast Pacific Ocean. And it's not very well known to anybody at that time, any Americans, because we don't have a lot of dealings in that ocean. So all of a sudden, we are fighting uh, not just in the Atlantic, but also in the Pacific. And there's a complete uh, dearth of oceanographic intelligence. So I would say there were opportunities for the oceanographers, of which there were only a uh, hundred by some counts, a hundred people that could be considered oceanographers in our country at that time. And many of them were working on naval research, either at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution or Scripps Oceanographic Institution on the West Coast. So that's where most of the oceanographers were at that time. In fact, to this point of fighting two ocean-based wars, was it not FDR in his very first fireside chat after Pearl Harbor said that the broad oceans which had been heralded in the past as our protection from attack have become endless battlefields? That is exactly right. And that in and of itself Knowing what I know now, that is a chilling statement because we didn't really know anything about fighting in the oceans. So we're at a disadvantage, especially compared to uh, the Germans who had been fighting already uh, for several years and who had been very seriously acquiring oceanographic intelligence. So same thing with the Japanese. You know, the Japanese spent... uh, a lot of money and resources on studying the Pacific Ocean well in advance of us. Emperor Hirohito was a marine biologist by training, and he had funded numerous surveys, and they had collected so much information on the Pacific that we were instantly at a disadvantage when we were going to have to fight in that body of water. So Mary... Sears decides that she's going to try to join the waves and contribute. How did that work out initially? And then how did it ultimately work out? Right. Well, you know, when Mary, when Mary got back to the labs, of course, she immediately observed that the men would start going off to war, that the, you know, the workforce was, was starting to dwindle because men were being drafted or they were just signing up and going. And the first hurdle was she had to wait until Women were allowed in the military, which did not happen until the summer of 1942. So remember, she arrived in March, and the waves did not even come into existence until July of 1942. And then, as she said, quote, full of patriotism, she applied to join the waves. But she was rejected because she had had a bout of what was called arthritis. It was probably just a an infected joint in her finger. But it was labeled that way in her medical record, and the Navy turned her down. And um, she would have stayed there at Woods Hole for the duration of the war, except for what I call the conversation that took place between uh, Lieutenant Roger Ravel and Columbus O'Donnell Iceland, the second director of Woods Hole. And, you know, Roger Ravel became a very prominent figure in oceanography. He he eventually became the director of scripts and very famous figure in oceanography. But at that time, he was a virtual unknown, just a, a lieutenant. He was a marine geologist who had joined the Navy. And the Navy had assigned him to the hydrographic office, which was the place that made charts and maps and things like that to navigate uh, the oceans. And he had been also been assigned to uh, the Bureau of Ships. He didn't want to go to the hydrographic office. He saw it as a dull map-making outfit. He wanted to be more the center of action at the Bureau of Ships. So he went 
over to Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution to visit with Iceland and to try to talk him into parting with one more oceanographer for the Navy so that he could offload that person over at the hydrographic office. And Iceland at first said, no, we don't have anybody. We're short of people as it is. We need more oceanographers ourselves. And then finally he relented and said, you can have her. You can have Mary Sears. That's the one person we can part with. And if not for that conversation, Mary Sears would not have made it into the waves. She said of herself that she was palmed off. Yeah, she did. And she was. Uh, she, she got that part right. Yeah, so she gets palmed off to the hydrographic office, hydro, as they call it. But as fate would have it, and she ultimately gets to join the Navy, she overcomes the arthritic joint medical disability that precluded her from joining earlier. And now she's in the waves and she does her indoctrination training at Mount Holyoke. Yeah. Yes, she does. Yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Then we'll talk about what happened to Hydro, you know, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. So Mary Sears got, uh, with the help of uh, Roger Ravel and Admiral uh, George Bryan at the the Naval Hydrographic Office, Mary gets a, a medical waiver and gets admitted to the waves. And then she has to go off to indoctrination for four to six weeks at at Mount Holyoke and learn to salute and take all the courses and learn everything about uh, ships and how to, you know, press her uniform and where to put it and all that sort of thing. And then um, she, of course, gets assigned to the Naval Hydrographic Office, where the first day she is occupying one desk in the, the Division of Maritime Security. It's a very tight oceanographic unit at that point because it's just Mary Sears. And she has to respond to whatever requests from any branch of the service. War planners, planning operations might send her a request for, you know, what are the tides or the waves going to be or, you know, that that sort of information that she would have to uh, put together. But soon after she's there, uh, she's joined first by uh, a gentleman named Fenner Chase, who was a crustacean expert from Harvard that she had known when he was a graduate student. And they had kind of crossed paths earlier. So she welcomed him to work with her. And one of the first things I worked on was this uh, project on uh, drift. And particularly Mary, she was also, I wanted to point out, she was named to the Joint Chiefs Subcommittee on Oceanography. And uh, that was a very important position for her to hold because, I mean, how many women were on Joint Chiefs committees at that point? I don't, I can't tell you, but I'm sure it's less than 1% of the members of those those committees. So she's holding this very important position. She joins Ravel and a few other uh, people there. And uh, one of the big events that had happened was that Eddie Rickenbacker, who had been a World War One ace uh, pilot, he had happened to be on a special mission in World War II um, for the Secretary of War, and he was flying over the Pacific, and someone else was piloting the plane, but they got lost, and their plane went down. And even though they had been in radio contact and you know air traffic control knew approximately where they went down, they were not found, I think it was something like 20-something days until they were found drifting in a raft. And because of this high-profile incident, uh, Mary was assigned a project on drift. In other words, how were these objects floating in the ocean? Where were they going? What direction would they go if uh, you didn't know where they were going? How would you find them? And it, you know, it was she had to go through a lot of the scientific literature and accumulate uh, a stack of references and condense it down to something that people could understand and some simple calculations and uh, rules of thumb so that you could predict where either a, a ditched plane or a or the wreckage from a ship or, or a raft would show up later. And so that was one of the first things she worked on, a very, very important project that resulted in information being disseminated throughout the Navy to help with rescuing downed pilots. 
her report, The Drift of Objects Under the Combined Action of Wind and Current, became almost the Bible of air-sea rescue operations in the Pacific. Well, I would say so. And I just want to point out, she probably wasn't the only one that contributed uh, to the final product. But, you know, it became clear, I think, early on that on this committee, Mary was going to be the workhorse. In other words, the men didn't mind sitting around the table and saying what needed to be done. But when it came to who's actually going to get the work done, it was going to have to be Mary Sears and whoever she recruited to join her at the Navy Hydrographic Office. So this oceanographic unit kind of rose up. The Joint Chiefs realized, hey, we need a full unit here, and we're going to empower this woman to bring some other people on board to work with her so that they can meet these needs, because obviously she knew what she was doing, and she was the right person to take control of it. And so, in fact, several people come on. Dora Henry, Mary Greer, and Fenner Chase, whose name you've mentioned. But tell us about each of them and and the skills that they brought to this quartet of superstars, in my estimation. This is definitely the core group. There are other people coming and going. So at any one time, there might be 10 to 15 people in this unit. But the core group that Mary Sears always referred to in her writings and in her oral histories are, are these people. And Fenner Chase, I mentioned, uh, the crustacean mm-hmm. expert, he had been drawing specimens and uh, was very interested in illustrating. So he had skills that would translate into designing some of the graphics for uh, the more extensive oceanographic reports, which I'll I'll get into those uh, a little bit later. So he was the member of the team that I, I kind of think of as the illustrator, but also a very brilliant uh, marine biologist in his own right. And then Dora Henry, just one of the more interesting people, she had been known as the Barnacle Lady uh, up at the University of Washington, and she was a barnacle expert. Uh, She developed a passion for these uh, small organisms, and people would send her specimens from all over the globe, and she would categorize them and write papers about them. And even the author, John Steinbeck, who had a hobby of collecting uh, specimens in the Gulf of San Francisco, he sent Dora uh, barnacles to describe. And he actually wrote a little bit about her in his book, uh, The Sea of Cortez. So that's kind of interesting. But Dora goes next. She is, as far as we can tell, she joins Mary and Fenner. And then uh, Mary Greer is... uh, the nation's foremost oceanographic librarian. And by that, I mean, she was working in the library in an oceanography department at the University of Washington when the war broke out. And, you know, it's so interesting to me. We've been through several other wars here in our country, but what happened during World War II, when it broke out, the oceanography department at the University of Washington closed down and everybody had to find another job. And it closed down because the men were going off to war. And we're kind of insulated from that now. We, we'd be kind of a stunned if anything closed down here in the United States. But World War II was such a wartime emergency that everything was rearranged. So Mary Greer had to go work at the Boeing plant doing quality assurance and, uh, you know, carrying a clipboard and looking, you know, inspecting airplanes and that sort of thing. And I always think, I imagine her surprise when she gets a call. If, if she did get a call, I'm, I'm assuming she got a call from Dora Henry saying, come join me at this hydrographic office and get back to doing what you're so good at. So as soon as she gets a call, she heads over to Suitland, Maryland. But um, so now we have this team with, you know, Mary is kind of the interpreter. She's getting the marching orders from the Joint Chiefs Subcommittee. And then we have Finner, who's the illustrator, and we have Dora Henry, who's a, a world-renowned editor and detail person. And then we have Mary Greer, who's going off to the various libraries and agencies around Washington, D.C., and collecting uh, data that they will turn into very valuable oceanographic intelligence reports. 
it's important to understand a couple of things, of course, about barnacles. Uh, not only was she expert in uh, lots of ways of writing and describing things in common language that sailors could understand, but barnacles posed a huge problem for the Navy. They stuck to the bottom of boats, they created drag, and they slowed down the vessels and caused them to need more fuel. So understanding barnacles is not just like, oh, that's interesting. It's how can we make our warships more efficient? Yeah. Well, you're you're exactly right. And there was a huge project at Woods Hole. It's called the Bottom Fouling Project. And it, it was built around trying to understand what were the organisms and the uh, seaweed and so forth that would collect on ship's holes and decrease their efficiency by 10%. So it would cause the ships to go slower, but also decrease the fuel efficiency. And we didn't have a whole lot of extra fuel during World War II. So, I mean, that was actually a project that Mary Sears had worked on before she uh, went into the waves. But Dora Henry was no doubt called upon many times to weigh in on what species of barnacle was uh, fouling uh, ships at any particular time also. And Mary Greer, you described as the librarian. Now, in my academic experience. Librarians are the people who mostly told me to shush because I was talking <laughs> too loud. But Mary was actually an unbelievable researcher of important data, data that the OSS, the predecessor to the CIA, could not themselves find. You sort of sell her short in a little bit of your, uh, not purposely, but in, in moving this narrative along, but Greer read German French, Dano, Norwegian, and with the help of dictionary, Russian, Italian, Spanish, and Dutch. Yep. Uh, yes, I. You know, I think Mary Mary Greer is just an amazing person. Uh, she did not hold a doctorate, but she certainly acted like she did. And one of the evidence of that is an oceanographic uh, index she had. She had compiled even before World War II broke out. And she had actually published a book on with references and articles and books all about uh, the ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And this this, too, came in very handy in World War II. But, I mean, Mary Greer was arguably one of the most knowledgeable people about the Pacific Ocean when World War II broke out, uh, just because she knew all the material. Yeah, she cataloged all... 2,929. Um, right. Geez. Right. Now, Benner Chase, the crustacean expert and sort of the artist in the group. So he's not just drawing pretty pictures of crabs that you'd find on a table at the Bethesda Crab House. He's <laughs> making maps. And yes. these maps, these cloth maps that they essentially developed again, became life-saving articles for seamen uh, across the whole war effort, yes? Yes, so the cloth map project is, it is one of the more fascinating projects and and one that, that Sears and Chase worked on early on. And again, you have to remember the state of air travel uh, when World War II broke out. It was still somewhat primitive and there were a lot of crashes. There were crashes because the planes maybe weren't as reliable as they are today, but there were also crashes because they were being gunned down and shot at, and there were just crashes because they would run out of fuel. So there were a lot of planes going down. There were ships being torpedoed. There were all these things causing men to be pitched into the sea and have to get into life rafts. So one of the things I came up with was developing uh, a material and the ink to go with it that would provide a navigation aid if you were one of those down pilots or one of the the sailors that had been thrown overboard or what have you. And the airmen could wear these, what were eventually, uh, silk was decided as uh, one of the materials that would outlast the the elements. So they had these silk maps that they would wear around their necks or stuff into their flight jackets, and they would also include them uh, on the life rafts. And they would have uh, currents mapped out on them. And the uh, strength of the current 
would be modeled by how dense the arrow was so that if you, you know, found yourself adrift in the sea, you would at least have an idea of what direction you were going and what might be nearby that you could safely navigate to. So we've mentioned that Mary was the recording secretary for the subcommittee of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But it's interesting to make a footnote that the Joint Chiefs, the subcommittee on oceanography that she was the recording secretary of, the Joint Chiefs didn't become the Joint Chiefs until World War II when FDR learned that the way we were balkanized in our military was hurting our war effort, right? Well, that's exactly right. There had been some loose uh, affiliation of the chiefs of the various services. And, and at that time, it was that was mainly the Navy and the Army. The Air Force was part of the Army, known as the Army Air Force. But, yeah, what, what FDR took away from the British is, you know, they had a very formal joint chiefs structure. And that's how they decided the direction of the war. And so he quickly modeled that same structure in our armed forces. And so the American Joint Chiefs would get together with the British Joint Chiefs and FDR and Churchill. And this this is how the and it was called the Combined Chiefs when they were all together. This is how the direction of the war was mapped out. And which direction are we going to go and how are we going to do this and what operation are we going to launch? Remember, we had operations going on across the Atlantic, and we had operations going on in the Pacific, and it, it required a lot of coordination, not only between the Americans and the British, but also all of our allies. So we had, you know, the Australians and the Russians and other people, and we, we were all working together on this. So one of the things that FDR noticed is that when he would go to these combined chief uh, meetings was that the British would always pull out a white paper on wherever we were going, and they seemed to know so much more detail than what the Americans knew. And that's because they'd been in the war longer, and they, they had been studying the areas that they were going to invade or where combat operations were going to go on. So he came on and he told his joint chiefs he wants reports that modeled those reports that would tell him what then what are all the conditions that could affect any operation by land, sea, or air? And he wants that in one report. And so this is going to become the Janus reports. Uh, one of the reports that Mary Sears really put points on the board with her part of this. So these Janus reports are the Joint Army-Navy Intelligence Studies. And they're comprised of about 12 to 13 different chapters created by 27 different agencies contributing to them. And Mary Sears is going to uh, contribute the chapter on oceanography. And uh, this is going to become a lot of the hardcore oceanographic intelligence that she provides. In the book, part two is called The Mission Begins. And I'd like to talk about the mission. But one of the things that you wrote um, that... Again, as I read this book, I thought, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, there's another thing I didn't know. And it was an exercise in proving my ignorance of science. But you write that the easy part in the missions was getting there. The hard part, the unknown part, was what would they find when they got there, and you you have a list of questions, and then we can talk about some of the undertakings. Were the beaches flat and wide or narrow and steep? Was the terrain mountainous, volcanic, or swampy? Would high wind and waves impede a smooth landing? Would they land during rainy season? What was the native population like? Was there drivable roads once the troops got on the beach? I mean, these questions became the heart of these Janus reports that really helped us identify where we would land, how we would land, what equipment we'd bring. Talk about that some, Catherine. Well, you know, Michael, it's almost impossible for us to fathom how little information we had at the start of World War II. We can't imagine it. We go to the file cabinets today, open them up, and they'd be empty. But that's exactly what happened when they went to look for, you know, what do, what do we know about Okinawa? What do we know about Iwo Jima? And come up with zero. 
So that's what the Janus reports were designed to provide information about. And it was amazing to me. I went to visit the Naval Oceanographic Office, uh, which is out outside New Orleans at the Stennis Space Center. There's now like 1,100 people doing what Mary Sears' 10-person group did during the war. But their mission is to proactively identify hot spots around the globe where we might get involved in combat missions and to characterize the battle space proactively, which is music to my ears knowing what happened during World War II. Because there was no proactively, except, you know, they were constantly trying to catch up with where are the troops going next and get that information together so they could answer those questions you just mentioned. So they wouldn't just walk into a hazard that would doom the entire mission. And I think Tarawa, is that how you say it? Tarawa, Tarawa, yeah. Is an example of how a shoreline and a lack of understanding of tides essentially turned that attack, Tarawa as an, as an island, into a killing field. Can right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So Tarawa was a, was a target in the Gilbert Islands, and it was surrounded by a coral reef. And that was the problem. And it was one of our first major amphibious assaults. There had been Guadalcanal and some other ones, but this was, you know, a, a, a major assault uh, planned and uh, a very important target that kind of opened up the uh, central phase of the Pacific campaign. And so on the eve of this battle, and let me just point out that the oceanographic unit was not, the Janus reports were not up and running at the time that Tarawa uh, was being planned. So the war planners were, were planning this operation with less than perfect information. And they knew that the coral reef obviously could be a barrier to getting to the island. It could be an obstruction. And But they had imperfect information. They were consulting natives and asking them what did they remember about the tides, asking foreign ship captains, who remembers anything about the tides, because this island was in enemy hands. We couldn't exactly go over there without a great deal of risk and, and get the information, although later in the Pacific campaign, we do do that sort of thing. Uh, so the tides were misjudged at Tarawa. And as a result, the landing boats, the Higgins boats, which are so famous, you see these uh, Saving Private Ryan, they're the, the, the boats that hold about 60 troop members and the front flops down to let the men out. So the, they need at least a four foot tide to get across the reef. And all they get that day is 3.3 feet for approximately 36 hours. And as a result, the landing boats get stuck on the coral reef, and the men have to bail out and wade into fierce uh, machine gun fire to get to the island. And we lose about 300 men just crossing the coral reef. Mm. And the aftermath is more reports and more pressure on Mary and her team to produce these reports more quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. In the aftermath of, of Tarawa, I mean, Tarawa was a public relations disaster because uh, we lost, you know, at least 20% of the landing force. At times, it looked like we would not achieve the objective, although we did prevail at Tarawa. Uh, there, hearings were held in Congress. Uh, Nimitz, Admiral Nimitz, who was the head of the Pacific campaign, went over there. He had to walk through corpses. He was getting hate mail from mothers who said, you killed my my son at Tarawa. It, it just had all the earmarks of a botched operation. And what Nimitz and ev everyone quickly understood is we really can't let that happen again because we need public opinion behind this campaign. Every stop on the Pacific campaign is, is going to be a difficult amphibious invasion. And we need people behind us so we can't afford to look reckless and like we're not really preparing as well as we can to have as few casualties as possible. So after terror, what it appeared to me is that, okay, so the Janus reports, they had a priority list they're supposed to be following. And at first it was not aligned with the Pacific campaign. I know that's that's hard to believe. We're we're fighting this war and we're going to these 
places where we know nothing and and we're doing reports on on places that don't matter but that's kind of what happened at the beginning and after Tarawa the priorities of the Janus reports changed and all of a sudden the Janus reports were more closely aligned with the upcoming invasions now i i have no way of knowing for sure whether people were paying more attention to them but it appeared to me since people were thanking Mary Sears and quoting her reports that they were starting to pay more attention to the information she was putting out there. You write about Mary Sears that she became an expert through this process in submarine warfare. We didn't talk, let's go back just a minute. At the outset, when she gets to Hydro, there's a project that she's going to work on called the Bathothermograph and the thermoclines. Right. Tell us about that. And after we know what that stuff is, let's move to Palau. Palau, yeah. You know, the Bathy thermograph at the outset of World War II is a large, clunky instrument. I have seen the original version of this over in Woods Hole's uh, archives, and it's about a two-foot-long instrument, probably weighs 60 pounds. And what this instrument does is it, it, it has to be thrown overboard on a wire and then reeled back up hundreds of times. And what it does is it can take measurements of temperature versus depth of the ocean. And with these measurements, you can identify layers in the ocean, uh, what are called thermoclines, their temperature differentials where submarines can hide from surface ships. And uh, at the outset of the war, there was a very primitive version And then a scientist named uh, Alan Vine uh, performed some uh, modifications of the instrument and made it, streamlined it, and made it much more reliable than it was at the outset. So the the people that refined the instrument were at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Mary Sears was not down in the machine shop refining the instrument. But later on in the war, what, what happened was this, the information, so... You had people on the uh, East Coast collecting these measurements in the Atlantic. You had people at Scripps collecting the uh, measurements from the Pacific. And then the the data would be sent to Mary Sears. And she would help collate the information and interpret it and include it in her reports. And then these reports called the submarine supplements to the sailing directions. So it allow she's able, in anticipation of the assault on this island, She's able to tell how reef-dwelling organisms and other open-sea fish noises could assist submarines in avoiding the detection that the underwater acoustic conditions became an important part of the intelligence they gathered. Similarly, light-producing organisms whose luminescence would inform the manner in which things proceed. So talk about Palau, because it was an interesting combination of things that we learned at that assault or well, anticipation of that assault. Yeah, I mean, that chapter is where I decided to include that information. I think it it is possible it was used earlier, or and, and for sure it was used later. But what's interesting about Palau, it is like the first invasion where we have a Full-scale Janus report. And I mean, they're like two or 300 pages long, well in advance of that operation. So not only can the war planners at the Joint Chiefs use the information to plan, and there's a lot that has to be planned, right? What side of the island are we going in? Are we going in on the east or the west? You know, what what time of day? All of that stuff has to be planned. What special equipment do we need? This is the first operation where we have all of that stuff. And even though they're they're going to encounter a reef again and they can make plans to bring uh, the very best amphibious tractors that they have, they're still going to have trouble because even though you have oceanographic intelligence giving you a heads up about what you're going to encounter, it doesn't mean uh, you're not going to have problems when you encounter it. It just means you're going to be able to to prepare but um, when it comes to the information used from the Abathi thermograph, well, there's a couple things. One, uh, the reef-dwelling organisms 
especially something called snapping shrimp, they could provide background noise that would make it difficult to interpret the sonography. So that's the importance of that is like uh, if sonar is being used for, you know, the first generation of sonar and you're pinging down below to try to, to, to locate something underneath the background conditions are going to affect the quality of that underwater radar, if you will. So Mary Sears would, would basically say, you know, if you're in this area of the Pacific, you're likely to encounter conditions that will be favorable or unfavorable to the use of, of sonar. But she certainly provided quite a bit of information in the submarine supplements that we could use, first of all, for our submarines to hide from enemy ships, and then for our surface ships uh, when they're using sonar and trying to locate enemy submarines. And in the landing, the jazz reports give you the knowledge of the distribution of sediments, mud, sand, coral, mud, sand mix, so you can plan the landing operation. And we'll talk about a failure of that in a minute. When we have to draw this conversation to a close, but talk about a little bit about bottom sediments and how important that became to the successful landing on these island attacks? Well, the bottom sediments, um, they could affect many aspects of a military operation, particularly dropping mines. So mines, you want to drop mines into something that they'll stick into, more like mud. And that became really, really important. I think the the other thing you're talking about maybe is the sand at Iwo Jima. What so, happened there? So, yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I kept looking for the Janus report on Iwo Jima, and I could never find one. And I was, you know, twisting the arm of all my research associates and trying to figure out, well, what happened? Why is there this gap? We do not have a Janus report at Iwo Jima. And what what I figured out was, well, Iwo Jima was a late addition to the Pacific campaign. I think it wasn't until September of 1944 that FDR and Churchill made the decision, okay, rather than go to Formosa. So the the initial plan had been, we're going to go to Formosa, which is the present day Taiwan, and then up to Japan. But what they quickly discovered, especially as they got deeper into the war, Taiwan is a huge island. Formosa was a gigantic island. And to take that island, would require at least 500,000 troops, which we did not have because, you know, the Atlantic and the European war were still ongoing. So instead, they substituted Iwo Jima and Okinawa, which is more of a direct path to Japan, which did not require those tremendous resources. And as a result of Iwo Jima being added later in the plan, there, there were no plans made to do the Janus report. Now, we know that there was some information gathered by the Oceanographic Unit, but but not to the degree, not to the specificity that a full-scale Janus report would allow. And as a result, uh, there were more mishaps, particularly with this volcanic sand on the beaches. And, and I got uh, a lot of firsthand accounts uh, from men who had been at Iwo Jima from the uh, Museum of the Pacific War. They have a, this vast oral history archive uh, of men who had been in the Pacific. And there was just one account after another of what happened when they landed at Iwo Jima and encountered this sifting black sand. And basically everybody just sunk into it. Uh, men had to crawl across it. Jeep sunk into it. Any kind of motorized vehicle just sunk up to the uh, axles into the sand, and it bogged down the operation, and it created a log jam at Iwo Jima. And you know, it, anything that happens like that totally throws off the timing of the operation, and creates a, the opportunity for more casualties. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's the bloodiest battle in the history of the Marines with. Over 25,000 U.S. casualties, 2,400 on the first day alone. Right. So the book continues on, and we look, and we won't have time to talk about, but the readers who I'm going to be assured are going to buy this book now are going to get to learn what happened at Okinawa 
and uh, Luzerne. But what I'd like to turn to as we get ready to bring this to an end is Truman drops the bomb. He says, I'm not going to conduct another attack like Okinawa or Iwo Jima uh, from one end of Japan to another. I'm ending this war. And he's been criticized for that, but that was his decision. And he drops the bomb. Janus reports continue to be used to locate and rescue tens of thousands of, of prisoners of, of war, which is a, a wonderful uh, sort of epilogue in a sense. But tell us what happened to Sears and the team after the war. Well, after the war, Mary Sears goes back to Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and um, she basically becomes the conscience of oceanography. She organizes the entire field. She co-founds the... Um, Journal Deep Sea Research. She organizes the first International Congress on Oceanography held at the United Nations in 1959. Uh, she is the connector. And I think the reason she plays this role is because she's, you know, she's never allowed on a ship. So that obviously uh, curtails her research activities. Instead of just giving up and walking away, she kind of shifts her focus to you know, organizing the field and, and becoming the super editor of everything oceanographic. Can you read me something which is the first full paragraph on page 252 of your book? I think it's a, a great way to end, although I've got one more question after that. Okay, sure. When Sears had shown up for duty as the first full-time oceanographer, she had occupied one desk in the pilot chart section of the Division of Maritime Security at the Hydrographic Office. From there, she had transformed naval oceanography into a 15-person unit whose impact she could not have imagined when she started in April 1943. After the war, the new division continued to collect and coordinate basic research for the Navy, the Coast Guard, the War Department, and other government agencies and carried out its own research program. The recently promoted Lieutenant Commander Sears continued to push through programs and improvements in oceanographic research until she left active duty June 4th, 1946. She was a hero child, you say, at the beginning when she raised her siblings, but she was a clearly a, a hero adult, a hidden figure, to use that expression, in the Pacific campaign. And I'm grateful for you to have informed us about her and her cohort and this important book. But I'd like to end, because I sort of like happy endings, for you to tell us about the 1998 International Year of the Ocean contest and the aftermath of it, please. Well, well yes. Um, so it was going to be, I believe it was the, they were celebrating uh, the International Year of the Ocean and in honor of that, the Navy decided to hold a ship naming contest um, in 1998. And it, this was a time when the Internet was just becoming popular. And so the idea was school kids would be able to use the Internet to research uh, possible namesakes for uh, oceanographic ships. So it was for school children to come up to, to nominate the name of an oceanographic survey ship. And um, in the top 10 were, uh, you know, Bruce Heason was number one and Mary Sears was in the top 10. And even though the Bruce Heason, very famous uh, Teutonic plate and floor of the ocean uh, researcher, very deservedly was the first one selected, the name Mary Sears stuck around and it stuck with Secretary Danzig, who was the Secretary of the Navy. And the next year, he announced that uh, the USNS Mary Sears would be the next uh, oceanographic survey ship. And, you know, when I when I have to tell you, Michael, when I went to the Naval Oceanographic Office, they have a huge portrait of Mary Sears. She is known there as the mother of military oceanography. She is their patron saint. And if you think you like this book, those people really love it because they feel like for the first time they are getting some much overdue recognition for the job they do to support uh, the armed forces. But uh, I met with a group of women oceanographers, one of whom uh, was going to go out on the USNS 
Mary Sears, which uh, is now docked off the coast of Australia. And I happen to know that our ambassador to Australia, Caroline Kennedy, recently toured the USNS Mary Sears, and one of the oceanographers there gave her a copy of Lethal Tide. So that was that was pretty exciting. And I hope that the oceanographic survey ship uh, USN Mary Sears has a woman's room on it. It it definitely has uh, female female quarters. Absolutely, it it is a full service ship. The book is called Lethal Tides: Mary Sears and the Marine Scientists Who Helped Win World War II. Catherine, it's a great read. I'm very grateful for you to have written it. I'm more grateful for you to have taken the time to speak to me today. Michael, uh, the pleasure was all mine. Uh, You just asked some great, great questions, and I, I really enjoyed our chat. Me too. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.